Are you a fan of the Harry Potter Therapy Podcast? Do you want more episodes, more magic, and more guests? Do you want our show to reach and inspire more of those in need? Well, we can really use your support. If you would like to help us in our mission to spread awareness and destigmatize mental health struggles, we ask that you please subscribe, rate, review, and share our podcast with friends, family, and folks you might think would enjoy and benefit from our content. Most importantly, please consider joining our Patreon community and becoming a contributor. As one of our Patreon contributors, you will get access to exclusive content, announcements, videos, and more. You will join a community of like-minded pop culture enthusiasts that celebrate our connections to our favorite movies, TV shows, icons, and superheroes. As a contributor, you will also be helping us support mental health charities as 15% of our proceeds are donated monthly. To join our Patreon community, go to www.patreon.com, make an account, search for Superhero Therapy, and select one of our tiers. Now, on with the show. Have you ever wished for magical powers? Do you still await your Hogwarts acceptance letter? Well, welcome to Hogwarts. You are magical. And this is your invitation to join us in exploring the psychology behind the most magical series, Harry Potter. Welcome to Harry Potter Therapy. Hello, all you magical people out there, and thank you so much for tuning in to Harry Potter Therapy. I am your host, Dustin McGinnis. I am a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fanboy. And I am Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time witch. Yeah. So today we are going to be exploring Prisoner of Azkaban, Chapter 6, Talons and Tea Leaves. This chapter starts out with Draco Malfoy and other Slytherins making fun of Harry for feigning because of the Dementor. Potter! Is it true you fainted? I mean, you actually fainted. Shove off, Malfoy. How did he find out? Just forget it. We all know that Draco has his issues with Harry, but why do others join in and insult him due to this particular weakness? Unfortunately, in a lot of individuals, when we see this kind of bad behavior, a lot of people engage in what's called the bystander effect. They see other people bullying someone else or harming someone else, and they might either kind of stand by and watch, or because maybe they feel intimidated by the bully, they might laugh. Not necessarily because they agree with what the bully's doing, but perhaps because they don't want to be picked on also because they want to fit in with the bully. They don't want to be on the bully's bad side. And what's really unfortunate is that a lot of times people who might actually not agree with what the bully's doing might not speak out, might go against their own morals and ethics and not support the target that the person is bullying. And so what we know from research is that it takes one person to make a difference. And when one person starts standing up for the target, for example, when Ron or Hermione stand up for Harry, other people tend to back off. And sometimes actually other people will start supporting the bullying target too and standing up to the bully. If enough people start speaking out against the bully, then even more people will join. And so it takes one. And so my point is, if you're listening to this podcast, if you ever see something going wrong, and nobody else is saying anything or doing anything, don't be a bystander. Be that magical person, the one that takes a stand and makes a difference, and hopefully other people will join in, but be the one that makes a difference. Yes. Be like Ron and Hermione. Hermione. Yeah. So 
Fred and George try to make Harry feel better and tell him that when the Dementor entered their end of the train, Draco was so terrified he ran into their compartment to hide. It's bothersome that some people make fun of others about things that actually affect them as well. It's very hypocritical. Why do people like Draco distance themselves from opportunities where they could share common humanity with someone instead of putting them down? I think for many people like Draco, if they somehow judge themselves for any kind of self-perceived weakness, they might therefore take it out on other people. I think that for many people, they're not willing to accept in others what they're not willing to accept within themselves. And I think because Draco's own father is so hard on him, I think Draco views any kind of an emotional response as a sign of weakness. And so I imagine he might have even felt ashamed about being afraid of this terrible monster, this Dementor that understandably, I think most people would be terrified of. And so I think then he is likely to lash out on somebody that he already resents or feels jealous of just to be able to elevate himself up, to be able to hide his own frustration with himself. And you're right, this was a great opportunity for common humanity for noticing, hey, we're the same here, and Draco doesn't take it. Yeah, I mean, Dementors are scary. They are. You can bond on that. <laughs> I would not want to face one. <laughs> yeah. And if and if you had to face one, wouldn't you want to just have some support, even if it was Draco Malfoy? <laughs> this year, Harry, Ron, and Hermione are taking a class called Divination. This class is taught by the faintly prophetic Professor Trelawney. Welcome, my children. In this room, you shall explore the noble art of divination. In this room, you shall discover if you possess the sight. <laughs> Hello, I am Professor Trelawney. Together, we shall cast ourselves into the future. What do you think about her and the nature of prophecies? Well, you know, we know that in a lot of storytelling, prophecies can be really important because I think the very attempt to try to deter prophecy is what makes the prophecy happen, right? Like if Voldemort didn't kill Harry's parents, his powers actually wouldn't be weakened. And so the very attempts to outrun someone's prophecy are likely to make it happen. However, in the realm of Trelawney's divination abilities, if we were to do the math, on how many times she's made these horrific predictions. Now, let's take a very conservative estimate here. Let's say she makes 10 catastrophizing predictions per day. I actually think that number is much, much higher. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And let's say that she's been doing it for 15 years, although I imagine that she's actually been doing it for much longer than that. So again, we're taking a very conservative estimate here. So we're going to multiply 10 times 15 times 365, not accounting for leap years, really. So we get 54,750 <laughs> times that she has made erroneous, terrifying predictions. And from what we know in the series, she was correct twice. Mm -hmm. Now, if somebody told me that there is some kind of a prophet or psychic, someone that is right two times out of 54,000, <laughs> I would not trust that psychic's uh, abilities. You boy, is your grandmother quite well? Uh, I think so. I wouldn't be so sure of that. And our mind is kind of like that. Our mind is kind of like Professor Trelawney, where our mind is an unreliable psychic. We have 
a whole ton of catastrophizing predictions that our mind makes, especially if you're someone that, like me, maybe struggles with anxiety. And so we might be thinking in worst case scenarios, we might be imagining all these terrible things that might happen to us or people we care about. And yet, if there is one or two instances that this prediction might come true, we take it as evidence that our mind is prophetic. Prophetic here means like prophecy building, right? Like psychic. And so I think that unfortunately, Professor Trelawney is very much like our catastrophizing mind. She's an unreliable psychic, one that just like our catastrophizing mind tends to terrify the students and as well as herself. Professor Trelawney asked the students to have some tea and when they get to the bottom, they need to attempt to interpret the leftover tea leaves in their cups. There's some kind of pictures or something left behind. This term we shall be focusing on tesomancy, which is the art of reading tea leaves. So please take the cup of the person sitting opposite you. What do you see? The truth lies buried like a sentence deep within a book waiting to be read. But first, you must broaden your minds. First, you must look beyond. This is kind of like the Rorschach test. Can you describe what a Rorschach test is and explain its function? Sure. So the Rorschach test was developed a little before World War II and was utilized a lot during World War II and little thereafter. It's not used as much today as it was before, but it is basically an inkblot test where participants would be shown a picture of an inkblot and they would be asked about what it is. And so, for example, there might be an inkblot that looks like a butterfly. And so a lot of people looking at it might say that they see a butterfly. People who might say that it looks like, you know, a demon from another dimension that is trying to speak to them or hurt their soul are more likely to suffer from symptoms of schizophrenia or other similar diseases. Although this test can be helpful in showing what the individual state of mind is like, it is not the most accurate tool for diagnosing. Therefore, it's not used for diagnosing very much, but it can be used for other purposes. Again, just to allow us to see the way that a person might be interpreting different functions and can be helpful for people with potentially psychotic disorders. So people with psychosis might have disorders like schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, and other similar experiences. So, I mean, it basically comes down to interpretation anyway, right? Yes. Both of these situations. Yeah. What you interpret from what you see. As Harry and Ron are trying to interpret their tea leaves, Professor Trelawney grabs their cup from them and sees an image she calls the Grim. Broaden your minds. Mm. Oh, your aura is pulsing, dear. Are you in the beyond? I think you are. Sure. Look at the cup. Tell me what you see. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. well, Harry's got sort of a wonky cross. That's trials and suffering. Mm-hmm. And uh, that there could be the sun, and that's happiness. So, uh, you're going to suffer, mm-hmm. but you're going to be happy about it. Give me the cup. Oh! Ah! Oh, my dear boy. My dear. You have the grim. 
The Grim is a spectral dog, kind of like a dark wolf. Seeing a Grim is an omen of death. On an interesting side note, in Native American cultures, the wolf symbolizes courage, loyalty, strength, and a successful hunt. This is just something for you to chew on while we're going through this book for something that might happen later. Although Professor Trelawney wrongfully predicts a student's death each year, this must have been really hard for Harry to hear, considering he did see a wolf earlier in his journeys. What do you think about this? Well, I'm really glad that you brought up cultural differences here, right? That although Trelawney thinks that she's seeing a grim, what we know is that Harry saw a black dog. And we learn later in the series that it is, in fact, a black dog. Now, in the British culture, and this book was written in the UK, in the British culture, a symbol of a black dog means depression. And so it's interesting that kind of the theme of this book is facing the black dog of depression <laughs> in a lot of ways. And so I thought it was really interesting that that was the symbol that kept coming up all throughout the book where Harry sees a black dog in the alleyway. He sees it in the clouds. He sees it in the tea leaves. And then Sirius himself, somebody that has been through so much trauma and depression in his life, takes the shape of a black dog as well. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting stuff. After lunch, Hermione, Harry, and Ron attend the Care of Magical Creatures class that anxious Hagrid is teaching. This is his first teaching gig. Hagrid introduces his class to magical creatures called hippogriffs. Da, 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 da. Isn't he beautiful? Say hello to Buckbeak. Hagrid, exactly what is that? That, Ron, is a hippogriff. First thing you want to know about hippogriffs is that they're very proud creatures, very easily offended. You do not want to insult a hippogriff. It may just be the last thing you ever do. Now, who'd like to come and say hello? After reading about hippogriffs in this chapter, I thought I'd make Hermione proud and dive into some research of my own. So please enjoy this chapter of Cultural Curiosities. You can see them flying over the splendor of Stormwind in the world of Warcraft. You can see them guarding the entrance to dreams in Neil Gaiman's Sandman. And of course you can see them starring in films like Harry Potter. Hippogriffs are very magical. A hippogriff is a legendary creature, supposedly the offspring of a griffin and a mare. Like a griffin, it has the head of an eagle, claws armed with talons, and wings covered with feathers, the rest of its body being that of a horse. The hippogriff was invented by the Italian poet Ludovico Ariosto. He created this creature in the 16th century epic poem titled Orlando Furioso. Hippogriffs are extremely fast and are presented as being able to fly around the world and even to the moon. In some traditions, the hippogriff is said to be the symbol of love as its parents, the mare and the griffin, are natural enemies. Griffins prey on mares. In other traditions, the hippogriff represents Christ's dual nature as both human and divine. After explaining that hippogriffs are very proud creatures and you need to bow to them and not insult them and things like that, Hagrid 
asks for a volunteer to approach a hippogriff named Buckbeak. Harry follows Hagrid's specific instructions to a T, and after a while, he's actually invited to ride Buckbeak. After an amazing flight, the whole class approaches the other hippogriffs. They too follow Hagrid's instructions, all except for Draco Malfoy, who broke the first rule about hippogriffs and insulted Buckbeak. Yes, you're not dangerous at all, are you? You great ugly brute. Malfoy, no. Buckbeak? Oi, you silly creature. Oh, it's killed me. It's killed me. Calm down. It's, it's just a scratch. Hagrid! Oh, he has to be taken to the hospital. I'm the teacher. I'll do it. Oh, 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 oh you're going to regret this. Class dismissed. You and your bloody chicken. Buckbeak attacks Draco out of pride. Can you discuss the nature of pride and why it might instigate a negative reaction? I think in this case, it's not just pride. I think it's the expectation of respect and honor. And Buckbeak is not only a proud hippogriff, he is also somebody that expects to be treated with respect, right? When Harry bows to him, he shows respect back. When Draco insults him, Buckbeak is understandably frustrated and very offended by this behavior, so he retaliates. And so I don't think that physical violence is ever the answer. But I do think there is such a thing as showing respect to others. And I think that Draco was being really obnoxious in this case. And so I think that it's it's understandable that Hippogriff had that reaction. And I also think that what we're seeing is not a matter of injured pride. I think it's a matter of disrespect and those are slightly different. Draco basically treats everybody beneath him and eventually there's someone out there that's gonna stand up for themselves. There's someone that's gonna challenge this behavior eventually and that's that's in life. <laughs> yep. So Buckbeak attacking Draco is a very serious situation. Draco can't wait to involve his father and when he does, you know there will be consequences, serious consequences for both Hagrid and Buckbeak. So afraid for Hagrid, the three visit his hut that night to talk to him about the whole day's events. Hagrid is very depressed and is sitting in front of this huge tankard full of alcohol. He's a mess and he's extremely drunk. This got me thinking about avoidance and coping behaviors. Can you discuss this through the lens of poor Hagrid here? Yeah, I think that a lot of people might not know how to process and share their feelings and might unfortunately develop some unhealthy coping behaviors where maybe alcohol or other substances might be the only way they know how to feel a little bit better in that moment. And in the short term, alcohol can make us feel a little bit better, but in the long term, unfortunately, it can make us feel worse because for every action, there is an opposite reaction. And so if 
in the moment, alcohol might dampen our emotions. When it wears off, our emotions are going to be that much more painful. And that's why alcohol is not a useful or reliable mechanism for managing our painful emotions. Talking to our friends, talking to loved ones, that tends to be a lot more helpful. Mm-hmm. Hagrid himself in the second book says better out than in. And I think <laughs> that applies more to you know talking than anything else. I think Hagrid understandably feels really stressed and really scared about losing his job. And also, unfortunately, this is really not the best coping behavior. Yeah, and I imagine he feels a little shame. Of course, even though it wasn't his fault, it was Draco's fault. Right. So Hagrid wants to sober up. He dunks his head into a water barrel outside his hut and has a moment of clarity. He realizes that Harry and Ron and Hermione are outside school grounds after dark, and he decides to escort them back to the castle because he says that he's not worth getting in trouble over. How much of an influence is self-loathing on depression? Well, the two kind of cause the other. When somebody is really hard on themselves, they might start feeling depressed. And when people are depressed, they tend to be very hard on themselves. In fact, when we start to really harshly judge ourselves, that's often an indication that we might be going through depression and we might need more support. We might need to talk to our loved ones or maybe a therapist for some assistance. And I think Hagrid is somebody that had a really difficult upbringing, was unfairly kicked out of Hogwarts, even when he was now found to be not guilty of the crime that everyone thought he committed. He is not able to finish his education, you know, and he has a really hard life. And so I think that it's understandable that he would be going through this. And also, poor guy, it's really not his fault. Yeah, I do have a really soft spot for Hagrid. (laughs) Such an endearing character. So this is a great opportunity for us to end this episode of Harry Potter Therapy. My name is Dustin McGinnis. You can find me on Twitter at The Valiant Geek. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. You can find me on Twitter at Shadow Quill or Dr. Janina Scarlett Official on Instagram. For all of our listeners out there, we are sending out free signed copies of Dr. Scarlett's book, Harry Potter Therapy, an unauthorized self-help book from the restricted section. To enter the drawing, all you have to do is tweet about this podcast with the hashtag HarryPotterTherapy. We will choose one lucky listener every month to receive their free copy. Unfortunately, due to high postage costs, international listeners will not be eligible for this promotion. Stay safe out there, everybody. Stay magical and take care.